Well, I'm excited about the message for today. Uh, this is, I really believe it's the most important message in this series, and I, I truly believe it's one of the most significant messages of this year that I'll be sharing with you or that I have shared with you. And I, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you on the front end that today really has the potential to be a defining moment for you. This message really has the potential to be a defining kind of message for you, but by the same token, it would be very easy for you to hear everything I'm going to say today and to agree and do nothing with it. This will be one of the easiest messages that you could imagine to just completely brush aside and keep on trucking just like you are. Don't let this be one of those days that you go, oh yeah, that was good stuff, and then blow it off because it's not going to be hard to figure out how to apply what we're going to talk about today. The real question is going to be, will you do anything with what we talk about? Because this is just some of the core stuff of life that I, I believe what we'll address today is going to be a big part of what gets us sidetracked, where we miss out on so much of what God has for us, wants to do in us and through us. Now, what I'm going to be talking about today is, uh, it's a pervasive thing. It affects all of the culture around us, and because the rest of the world around us has so bought into the lie that we're going to talk about today, it's going to take some real willpower on your part to, to work against the culture in embracing what we're going to talk about today. But I, I will promise you this, that the truth that we'll be talking about today, you will learn this lesson. You will learn it. It may be today, it may be later in your life, it may be on your deathbed, or it may be in eternity, but I promise you, you'll learn today's lesson. The tragic thing is, a lot of people won't get the lesson that we're going to talk about today until their lives are spent, and they are right there at the end, and they look back and consistently say, oh my goodness, I, I wish I had a chance to rewind, I wish I could back up, I wish I could do it over because I would do it differently. Somewhere along the way, we're, we're going to get it. So, so what is the lesson for today? Well, we're talking about a, a better life. And we're going to talk about is a, is a basic lesson for living a better life that's going to mean we're going to have to stop buying into a lie of the world. And here is the basic lie of the world. The lie is this, that if this is good, then this is better. It's just that simple. If one handful is good, there we go. I've got plenty to share. If one handful is good, two handfuls has got to be better, right? I mean, this is true about everything in life, isn't it? If one is good, two is way better. Well, we see this in, in all kinds of different issues and uh, things around us that, that we just believe that, you know, if a dollar is good, two dollars is bound to be better, right? If, if having a home is good, Having a home and a beach house has got to be better, doesn't it? If having one automobile is good, oh, having two is bound to be better. If having one flat screen TV is good, having one for the bedroom and the den has got to be better, doesn't it? If having a job that pays $100,000 a year is good, having a job that pays $200,000 a year, that has to be better. If having one wife is good, having two wives has to be crazy okay it doesn't apply to everything but it applies to a, a lot of things but do you see how how this basic lie just permeates almost everything in our culture and in how we're brainwashed to think if one is good if one handful is good two handfuls have got to be better so I need a little more. It's going to be the next handful. It's going to be the next one that's going to make me really happy. And this is the oldest lie in humanity. It goes all the way back to the garden. Think about it. The very first lie, the very first deception revolved around this concept. Adam and Eve were put in the most ideal environment that you could imagine. They're, the whole world is theirs to enjoy. They're put in a garden where it's just bearing all kinds of fruit and there's more food than they could hope to eat. And when the enemy comes in and begins his deception, how does he do that? Well, he starts off by saying, so has God really said you can't have any of this stuff? And you remember the whole conversation there. Well, no, God didn't say that. In fact, the Lord said we can enjoy all kinds of good things in here. He just set a boundary and said, 
we can't eat the fruit from this one particular tree, that that's really bad news, and that if we eat that, that, that we'll wind up dying as a result of that. And that's where the deception begins. When the enemy goes, oh, yeah. So you get all of this stuff out here. But what you don't understand is, this stuff out here isn't enough. This, this is not what's really going to satisfy you, because you would really be happy. You'd really be who you were supposed to be. Your life would be complete if you could just have the fruit of one more tree. Yeah, th- this stuff out here, it looks good, but uh, something more that you don't now have, that's what would make you really happy. And they started looking at that man. It looked appealing to the eye and looked like that, that would be really satisfying to the belly and started thinking, you know what, maybe he's right. I mean, what we have right now, it's a lot of good stuff, but wouldn't it be better if we could have one more, one more option? And when they went there, they were hooked. Life changed because they bought into that lie. We've been buying into that lie for thousands of years since then. Well, I know they say confession is good for the soul, and so I'm going to make a confession to you this morning, and it's one I'm sort of ashamed to to make, but um, I brought the candy up here as a real personal illustration because uh, I have to admit that there are different ways in my life that I'll buy into the lie, in ways big and small. I was reminded of just how much the two-handful thing really is a lie on Halloween night. Uh, Jackie had called me up that day and had said, hey... I'm always giving out candy to a lot of kids in our neighborhood. Do you want to come by and help me give out candy? And I thought, it beats sitting at home alone giving it out of my neighborhood. So uh, I went over to her house. And let me just tell you, if you trick-or-treat at Halloween, you should go to Jackie's house because she buys good candy and, and gets... I've never seen anybody who buys that much candy for Halloween. So, you know, I'm at her house on Thursday night a week and a half ago helping her. We're taking turns going to the door and giving out candy. And I had just kind of made up my mind going in. I'm like, you know, I, I, need, to, I need to shed 15 or 20 pounds, and so I need, to, I need to stay away from that candy. And so the whole evening, we're giving out handfuls of candy and didn't eat a single piece of candy that night. And we got to the point, don't hallelujah just yet. <laughs> we got to where, you know, things are winding down longer and longer between each person. And so it's like, you know, we can... While we're waiting to see if anybody else is coming, we'll turn on the TV and we, the detective program that comes on that we both like, an hour-long program. So it's like, we'll sit down and watch this show and see if any more kids show up. And the next time Jackie comes back and sits down on the couch, she brings a tub of the candy and sits in between us. Now, she's the most disciplined person I have ever known in terms of what she eats. It's, it's wonderful. It makes me sick all at the same time. And so she sits down and she has, I don't know, like one or two pieces of candy and goes, you're not going to have any? And I'm like, no, I've done good tonight. I have not had a single piece. And so, you know, she's had one. She, she has a second one. She's like, you sure you don't want any? And I'm looking at that tub of candy. I'm thinking, you know, Butterfinger's my very most favorite candy bar, and they are small. And I thought, you know, just one wouldn't hurt. So I tear into that first Butterfinger, and I'm like, ooh, and it's fresh. You know how a fresh Butterfinger is so much better. I mean, I woof that thing down, and I'm like, I'm so glad I did that. And watching the TV program, and I'm, I'm still looking at that tub, and I, I notice, man, she's got baby Ruths in there. I hadn't had a baby Ruth since... I don't know when. I, I love those things growing up. And I'm like, I mean, it was a small person. If I just have one more, I mean, what's two going to do? So I, I open that baby Ruth. And I'm like, God, oh, that is so good. Eat that baby Ruth. And then I, I notice Snickers. Man, that was my favorite candy bar growing up. Just, and it's small. Just, just one more, and that will be it. And so I have that Snickers. And then I noticed she's got Reese cups, and I can't tell you when I've had a Reese cup. Well, long story short, when that program went off, I looked in my lap and was sort of shocked at what I saw, and I started counting 15 candy bars I had eaten in one TV program. 15! I probably haven't eaten 15 candy bars in the last year or two combined, and it all just started with, well, you know, one... That would be satisfying, and just but but you know one more wouldn't. I, I bet I'd be satisfied if I had one more, and and before you know it, one becomes this, becomes this, becomes a lapful of empty candy wrappers, and let me just say, 
that the rest of that night became a painful reminder of just how much the lie really is a lie that more is better. Because let me just tell you, 15 candy bars did not go down well that night. I had a bellyache all night long. I know that's a shocker. But you know what the bottom line in that is? More isn't better. A lot of times more is just more. And sometimes more is actually a whole lot worse in a lot of parts of life. So here is the basic truth of the day. It's just this simple. That it's better to have less of what doesn't matter and more of what does. I want you to say that with me. It's better to have less of what doesn't matter and more of what does. Boy, that's profound, isn't it? If you'll buy into that, your life will be different. Less of what doesn't matter, more of what does. Now this truth springs from our memory verse for the week. And as I said, we're going through a four-part series called A Better Life. Where we're looking at four key passages that, that focus on the word better. What we need to invest in to have a better life. And the memory verse for this week is Ecclesiastes 4.6. Solomon knew what he was talking about when he wrote Ecclesiastes because he had tried the life of more. He, he acquired more stuff, more homes, more money, more women, more of everything, than you, more knowledge than you can imagine. And he found out that more is not better. In fact, he found great futility in that. And he's the one who said in Ecclesiastes 4.6, Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now that is an important, simple truth, isn't it? Now we're, we're going to commit these things to memory because we believe in the power of the word to transform us. And so I want us to work on this one right now. I want you to say it with me. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with with toil and chasing after the wind, Ecclesiastes 4, 6. All right, that wasn't bad, but we can, we can do better. Let's say it together. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. All right, you read well. Now let's kill it on the screen and let's put down the notes. Let, let's try and do this without, without any help. Ready? Better... That's good. Let's do it one more time. Better. Ecclesiastes 4, 6. That is awesome, and that is the truth. Why is that true, by the way? If one handful is good, why is it two handfuls better? It just seems intuitive that. If one is good, two should be better. Do you want to know why one is better than two? Because if I have two handfuls, it's really just this simple. I've got two handfuls, but at this point, I'm useless. My hands are used up. You come along right now and tell me that you need a little help. You need a hand. You need a hug. You need somebody to hold on to you? And I'll have to say, uh, want a Snickers? <laughs> right now, you, you need somebody to reach out and, and to, to give you a high five or, or to just wrap you up and hold you close and say, I'm here with you. And I, I'll, I'll tell you, I, I'll be with you. I, as soon as I get through with this, I, I'll be right there. You see, this is what two-handful living will do. It always keeps you tied up where you are not much good to the people around you who need you the most. That's what two-handful living will do for you. You're always working. You're always chasing. You're always trying to pay it off. You're always living for the day that you're not going to be so busy. But in the meantime, your hands are tied. But one handful living. One handful living still leaves me in a position that I've still got to, to stay engaged over here, working, taking care of responsibilities, paying bills, doing the things of life. But you know what? I can do that with my off hand. I'm right hand dominant. I can take care of those things with one handful. If I'm willing 
to plan my life right. And it takes some major planning. It takes a strategy to live a one handful of life. But if I, if I plan rightly, I can engage with my offhand. And you know what that does? It leaves the other hand free to do all kinds of things. It leaves that hand free to wave and hug and shake a hand and reach down and pick up and to serve and to reach out to God and to do all kinds of important things that I'm really made for because quite honestly, I wasn't made for this. When we talk about what doesn't matter, this is what doesn't matter. How much money I make, how many hours I work, I mean, that's a part of life. You've got to make a living. You've got to work. That's not what matters in life. I better be just using my offhand for that because I want the best of my strength to be poured into the things that matter the most. Boy, Jesus fully got this, and he nailed this principle in Luke chapter 12 when he said there, Luke 12, 15, he said, Watch out! Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Against this. More, more, more. Just a little more. Just one more. Jesus said, you better watch out. You'd better be on your guard. Why? Because the whole world is telling you this is where happiness is. This is how you should be living your life. You should be working more, making more, hoarding more. More. This is where you're supposed to be. And Jesus said, you're going to have to guard yourself. Because the world is brainwashing you to think that more is better. Watch out, watch out, guard yourself. And then he goes on to say, Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And then he tells a story. He tells a story about a farmer. If he were talking to us today, he'd be talking about a small business owner. And he said that farmer one year, he had a bumper crop like you couldn't imagine. It went beyond his wildest imagination. And he didn't even have barns to contain all of the produce of the land. Suddenly, in one season, he had hit it rich. And he said to himself, what am I going to do? I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns. I'm going to bank this for myself. I'm going to eat I'm going to live. I'm going to enjoy life to the full. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy my wealth. And then I'll really be happy with more. And Jesus concluded that in verses 20 and 21 by saying, But God said to him, You fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Jesus understood. He understood that we live in a world that is constantly telling us, pursue more. You could make more. You could have more. Your life would be better with more. And I just want to tell you, God isn't stressed about whether or not you get to have some stuff. God isn't stressed by what you have. He's a lot more concerned about whether what you have has you. And boy, it'll do that without you even realizing it. And if you don't think so, try letting go of it. <laughs> That's the test. Give it away. See how easy that is. I mean, see if it doesn't cause you a little bit of anxiety right now to think about if Jesus showed up today and had the same conversation with you that he had with a rich young ruler and said, you want to follow me? It's only one thing you like. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. That'd be a little stumbling block there, wouldn't it? How much stress does it cause you to think about getting rid of a lot of the stuff that you now hold on to rather tightly? Bottom line is, it's better to have less of what doesn't matter and more of what does. Better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Now, if we're going to do anything with what we're talking about today... We're going to need to be able to identify and define what really does matter. If we're talking about less of what doesn't matter, more of what does. You're going to need to nail this down. And so I'm going to ask you right now to, if you don't have your notes in front of you, pull them out, the little outline you were given when you walked in the door, and you'll see on there a place that says define what matters most to you and then just blank spaces, one, two, three, four, five. Grab a pen. I want you to do it right now because half of you won't think about this when you get home. 
I want you to begin to map out your priorities. In your life, what matters most to you? And you may be thinking, well, now that's a heavy, deep question. I'd have to have a lot of time to think about that. No, you really don't. I mean, if you want me to help you cut to the chase on this, it's this simple. If you've got six weeks to live, you're going to make it to Christmas, you'll be dead by New Year's. You've got six weeks to live. Your doctor just told you that. What are you going to do between now and New Year's Eve? How are you going to spend the next six weeks? Write it down right now. That's not hard to figure out, is it? Not, not terribly lost when you think about it like that. If you've got six weeks to live, how are you going to spend your time? While you're writing, I'm just going to point some things out. Lots of Christians have been asked this kind of question over time. And let me tell you what, as you're writing, what some of the most popular answers are. And I suspect I'm going to be saying out loud what many of you are writing on the page. Most Christians, in some shape or form, next to number one, are going to write something that involves the word God. That we want to put God first. A closer relationship with God. Serving God. Knowing God. For most of us, that's going to be the top priority. Number two, I bet I can tell you what most of you, the key word you're writing next to number two, family, right? In some shape or form, we are saying, you know, my spouse, my kids, my extended family, wanting to leave a legacy that matters, wanting to leave a legacy of faith, wanting to love them well. If you had six weeks to live, wouldn't you want to spend time with God, make sure you're right with Him, spend time with your family? And then it's number three and beyond that it, you know, it's going to vary some. But here's what most Christians wind up writing about. You know, three through five, we're going to talk about things like church, friends, trying to lead family to Christ, serving God in some significant way, doing something for the Lord and the world that would make a difference. Those things sounding familiar, is that sounding something like your list? Okay, well, here's the thing. I would dare say, of all the people in the room who've been making a list, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I'll bet there's not one person in the room who, if you were serious about mapping out your top five, said, how much money I have in the bank. That's what's really going to matter to me in the last six weeks of my life. I just want to see if I can bank some more money. Because there's nothing that matters more on the day that they put you in that box and drop you in that hole than how much money you had in the bank, right? Wrong. Or how about how much money I'm making this year? Just wishing I could have gotten you know, past January 1st and gotten another raise because that would have really made life more meaningful, wouldn't it? No. Anybody put down on your top five list? Wish that I had more Twitter followers. If I just could have gotten a few more, my life really would have been all it was supposed to be. Or, or if I just could have gotten some more likes on Facebook, you know posting where I'm going to lunch. I bet I can get three people to like that. And if I'm really good, maybe four. That would have made life more special. Now, I know what's on everybody's list. Just getting ten levels further in Candy Crush, right? I mean, that's the thing that really would make life more fulfilling. None of that junk is on anybody's list. Because at the end of the day, we get it. That's the junk of life. It's part of life. For a lot of us, it's just not what matters. We've got to home in on what really does matter and then figure out, all right, when we define what matters, how do I live a one-handful life so that there's real balance, there's margin, there's room for the things that matter? Well, in living a one-handful life, it's not complicated. There really are two parts to it, and this is what I want to share with you in the minutes that we have left. The first one's what we're going to home in on, but, but both of these are critically important. And the first one is this. You've got to let go of what doesn't matter. And this is the hard part. If you're going to have the better life, and this is what it's all about, do, do you just want good? Do you just want the American dream, or do you want the better life that few people experience? Because the only way to get better, we talked about this last week, you're not going to get better unless you let go of the good. It's the only way you get better. And you're going to have to let go of what doesn't matter. Hebrews 12.1 is really a key text for what we're going to talk about today. The writer of Hebrews has just spent all of chapter 11 
describing the lives of some of the greats of the faith. Hebrews 11 is the Hall of Faith chapter. And having said that, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, who's the great cloud of witnesses? It's all these men and women of faith who've gone before us who really have wrapped their lives around what matters most. They've lived the one handful life, and with, their, with all that's been left of their lives, they've been able to make a difference. Since we have this cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How many of you believe that God does have a race for you and for your life? That there is a course set out for you? Well, I want to tell you, not only those with your hands lifted, but everybody else, God has a race for you to run. There is a course for your life, and it is not a track that is just an oval that you just do this all the time. It is a cross-country race. God wants to take you places. He wants to use you to impact lives and change the world. There is a race for you to run, but the writer is saying that's not going to happen if, if a couple of things can cut you off. There is sin that can trip you up, so he's saying you've got to be very careful about that. You can be led into a lifestyle of sin and disobedience to God that totally gets you off track, and, and that can happen. But you know what he mentions before that? Stuff that's not sin. Just all of the other stuff that entangles us. You know the old saying, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you what? Busy. That's what he's talking about. All the other things in your life that get you tangled up so that you just aren't able to actually run the course that God has for you. What does he say about that? Well, he says you need to throw it off. Throw off everything that hinders. That term for throw it off, I don't want you to miss this because it's a key piece in this. The, the phrase there means literally to cast down violently. The, the word picture is as if you had a roach in your hair, how you would respond to it. I mean, can you imagine if you felt something crawling around your hair right now, sitting in your seat right here in church in a nice, clean little space, and you reached up and you felt, and it's like, hmm, feels like it's about an inch and a half long. It's flat, about a half inch wide, has long legs. Oh, I know what that is. That's a cockroach. Well... I mean, I don't want to injure the cockroach, and I don't want to disturb the service. I'll just leave him there until later. I'll take care of that after church. Anybody in the room going to react like that? No! This is the, the kind of analogy that we're being given. To throw down, it means to cast down violently. Let me tell you, a cockroach gets on this head, there's going to be some casting down violently. I'm going to be jumping and kicking and screaming like a girl and throwing that thing down like my life depends on it. I don't like roaches at, at all. That is the picture for how the Lord says you'd better address all of this stuff that comes in. It's not bad stuff. It's just stuff that so engages your schedule and your spending and your mind that you just get all tangled up in that and you don't have a hand free for the things that really matter in life. And he says you better throw it down violently like a cockroach in your hair. That's how you better treat the kind of stuff that we're going to talk about today. Well, so how do we do this? How do we let go of what doesn't matter? Well, three things, three practical applications for what we need to do. We need to cut back, throw out, and turn off. Say it with me. Cut back, throw out, and turn off. All right, what are we going to cut back? Well, most of us need to cut back two things. We need to cut back spending and our schedules. Look, we, we just might as well face it. We live in a wonderful land, and that is a blessing, but the curse that goes with it is we are some of the most spoiled people on the planet. We just are. We think we're supposed to have ten times what we really need. We're, you know, we're headed into the holidays, and we're trying to dream up stuff to tell other people to get us for Christmas who are going, come on, I need a Christmas list. I'm having a hard time thinking of what to get you. You know why that's so hard for all of us? Because we've all got 10 times more than what we really need. So we have to dream up more junk that we don't really need and dream up more junk to buy other people to show them that we really love them when the truth of the matter is we live with more than a double handful. We've got to cut back. 
We've got to cut back spending. Most of us need desperately to take a hard look at our spending. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I just want to ask the question. How many of you have a written spending plan? It's called a budget. Because if you don't, it's very, very unlikely that you spend wisely. Some people are that disciplined, most are not. Most people have a spending plan that's not written out, but they have a spending plan. I make money and I spend it all, and that is my plan. And my goal is to work it out so that I spend the last of it on the last day before payday. You know, that we just try and make that last until the next payday, and we just spend it all, spend it all, spend it all. We have a desperate need to take a big step back and look at the whole of what we make. Look, we're approaching the end of the year. And one of the most spiritual things that you could do, seriously, is for you to, to just map out everything that you spend money on and create a budget. I, I would encourage you as you do that, make it your basic framework in doing that. As you go into 2014, I'm going to live on the 80-10-10 plan. So simple. 80-10-10. The first 10% of everything that I make, it is the Lord's and I don't touch it. It goes right back to the Lord. I'm going to tithe it. And that is out of my hands. I will write the check first thing. The second 10% is saved. If I haven't planned a budget where there is savings, then I'm not planning a budget well. If we're having to spend everything that we make, we have a problem. Second 10% is going to go in savings or retirement. Some way it's going to be put back. And then that leaves 80% to figure out, you know, now what am I going to do with the rest of that? And you need to be thoughtful about how you, you spend that. But think about the ways that you could reduce your spending that it would take pressure off. Because, I mean, here's the deal. I would far rather have a one-handful life and be you know, a one-handful person when it comes to my spending, live on less, and actually have financial margin in my life. I'd far rather have to make adjustments so that I can live on this and not have to deal with constant stress and worry about paying my bills. Not have fights and friction and tension. I mean, how many times for the married people in the room have you just found yourself more at odds with your spouse when the money has run out? And it's not the money that you spent. It's always the money that your spouse spent, right? You know, forget the things that you wrote. We needed those things, right? It was what your spouse spent. Figuring out how to spend less. There are probably some in the room that you've been working at this. There are a lot of us here who still need to work on it. And I mean, we could, we could spend a lot of time just thinking through the different ways to reduce spending. There are three or four that are the biggies. I mean, you, you could look at just you know, tons of ways that you could make cutbacks that, that would be worth doing. But look, if you're serious about it, you just want to cut to the chase, you want to know where more than anything else you will determine whether you spend a lot of money in your life or whether you save a lot of money in your life. What you live in what you drive, and how often you eat out, those three things will determine where you are financially more than anything else. That ain't rocket science. If you're willing to live in a modest home versus a home that's a 1,000 square feet bigger than what you really need, if you're willing to drive vehicles until you've gotten the good out of them, and I'm not trying to tell you what to do or what not to do. I'm just telling you the facts. The people, economists who look at personal spending and personal savings, I mean, they will tell you that of these, the one that will determine by six figures over the course of your lifetime, whether you'll be you know, in debt or have, have greater savings, will be whether you buy new cars or used cars. Needing to drive a new vehicle versus buying something that's two to three years old that's between twenty five and 50,000 miles when you get it, it's amazing how far north of $100,000 that you'll save in the course of a life, lifetime. Driving a car until it's seven or eight or nine years old versus driving a car for two or three or four years and always having to trade so that you've got something shinier and new. Again, I'm not trying to you know, say God hates for people to... It, it's just truth in terms of, of your money. If that's where you want to invest your money, go for it. But just understand, these are defining things in life. How often you eat out. It's insane when you do the math on how much money we can spend eating out. 
And trust me, I know, because I've done it enough in my life. That's been one of the nicest, big adjustments I've made in the last couple of years, is having gone from literally eating out 12 or 14 times a week to eating out a small fraction of that. It's crazy how much we'll spend eating out. Of course, you know, I mean, the, the other one that's the biggie that none of us want to touch is to look at, you know, did I at some point along the line bite off more home than what I needed? And that's a, that's a radical adjustment that sometimes is worth making. I, I'll tell you this, I have never been happier in the last many years of my life than I have been being in a house that's a fraction the size of what I've been living in in the past. Bigger isn't better. More isn't better. It's just bigger. It's just more to take care of. So, cutting back spending is a biggie. Having room to breathe, having margin. And then the second thing that we need to cut back is our schedules. And if you're not convinced of that, let me just ask you to do this little simple experiment. Speak to ten people before you leave church today. Man, I work at church because of what I'm about to say. But speak to ten people out in the world today. And just ask them a question, how are you doing? And you count how many times the answer involves. I mean, they may first say, I'm doing okay or I'm doing good. But you see how many times the second half of that answer is, but I'm just so busy. I'm just so tired. Do you, do you realize how many times we say that and how many times we hear that? I mean, it just, I'm tired before I preach, just listening to how many people tell me on Sunday morning, I'm doing good, but I'm just so tired. I'm just so busy. You know what I'm looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the day that people walk in here and I say, how are you doing? And they say, I'm great. I am so rested. I am so refreshed. I am so full. You know what? I've been having a great week. I've been able to, to get the sleep that I needed at night. I've been able to exercise. I've been able to go out on dates. I've been able to spend quality time with my family. I've been having plenty of time with Jesus in His Word. I'm doing great. Rested up and ready for whatever God's got today. But please, somebody be behind me to catch me because I'm going to pass out when that happens. It's a great place to live. And it's actually where God wants us to live. I don't mean that you, you sit on your rump all the time. That's, that's not the life that we're talking about. We're just talking about living with margin. There's time enough in every day to do the will of God. Every day. And we live like there's not. We live like, oh, oh, I've just got so much to do. I just, I don't have, I'm sorry. You know, I, I would love, Philip, I'd love to help out in the booth, but I'm just so busy. Ross, I'd, I'd love to come and be a part of the praise. I just don't have time. I'm just, I'm so busy. I've just got so much stuff to do. I'm just working, working, working. I've got all these commitments. I've got so much to do. Why don't you stop? Why don't you stop about two-thirds of what you're doing? See if the world falls apart. See if the Holy Trinity gathers for emergency session to figure out how they're going to make it this week if you actually pull back and shave down your schedule. Most of us are spending more time working than we need to. In part, for men primarily, because our identity is so tied up in our work and the need to accomplish and to make advancements. And friends, when we talk about less of what doesn't matter, more of what does, work is on the less of what doesn't matter. Part of it's about needing to, to do something significant, and part of it is we have created a lifestyle that works us to death. We have created a lifestyle that requires two incomes to support it. We have created a lifestyle that, that we're going to have to work till we're 114 in order to pay it all off. And there is no hope of getting to a different place unless you figure out how to spend less so that you can work less. Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you what? Rest? Well, that must have gone out in the first century. Because I can't remember the last time I asked a Christian how they were doing that they said, I'm rested. I'm good. I've, I've got time. You know, I, I'm sort of amazed at how many times people begin their conversations with me by apologizing for taking the time to talk to me and saying, I know you're such a busy man. Let me just go ahead and say, when you call me, don't waste the time to say that. I, I don't want to live that life, and I don't want you to have that perception. I want you to know, my life has been turned upside right in the last couple of years. 
And I've got time for you. I've got time for Jesus. I've got time for my girls. I've got time for the people that I care about. I've got time to exercise five days a week. I've got time to be in the Word. I've got time to rest at night. And it's not because I became lazy. The Lord has gotten my attention and has shown me, you've got to say no to the good in order to experience the better. Now, you want my time to talk to me? You are not interrupting a busy man. Doesn't mean that I don't have stuff to do during the week, but my life is structured to make sure I have time for people. And by the same token, don't get your feelings hurt that you invite me to your social function, and I tell you no, because that's part of why I have time. I've learned to be ruthless in saying no to a lot of things that are non-essential. And you need to learn to do the same thing if you haven't. So many of us are so worried about what somebody's going to think if we say no to their party, to their shower, to their get-together, to their blah, 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 to their, you know, we're going to sell you this and we're having a party. Or Ain't coming. I hope you have a great time selling your stuff. I hope you have a great banquet. I hope you raise lots of money. I'm not coming to most of it. I, you just got to get to a point you don't care how that sounds. <laughs> I'm going to keep one hand free. I am not going to tie down my schedule all the time where there's no margin. I figured out where the boundary lines need to fall for me, and they're going to fall there. And I, unless it's truly an emergency, I don't move those boundary lines very often. We're going to have to be ruthless in shaving back our schedules. You know, part of the more, more, more. We, we believe when we're raising kids, if one sport's good for them, then two's going to be better. Now let's add dance and gymnastics in there too. Let's, let's just do more and more. And you get so busy, you don't have time for the things that really matter. And sports are great. But moderation, one handful. Well, we need to cut back, but we need to do more than that. We need to throw out. It's time to clean out the clutter. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Somebody has said, throw away as if your life depends on it, because it does. We have just got a disease of accumulation that we just keep piling up more and more. And I'm telling you, when stuff starts sticking to you and your home, there's a problem. Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard, because greed is like a disease. The more stuff you have, the more you want, and the more it just eats you up. You know, it, it used to be that when people built homes... They had very few closets and they were really small. How many of you have now or in the past have lived in a house that was built like before 1960? A lot of us have. Were you not frustrated by how little closet space that it had? I mean, the house that my parents, they, they still live in the house that I was born in. And sometimes when I'm in their house, I'm like, how in the world did people live like this? You know, these, these, these little teeny tiny closets and there aren't many of them. Do you know how they lived like that? Because they didn't have 14 tons of junk that they kept. They owned less. And think about it now. Go look. Go to any parade of homes, newly built homes, and look around. Find the house that doesn't have walk-in closets. Find the house that doesn't have a two-car garage that will never have two cars parked in it. Why? Because at least half of that is devoted to our junk so here's the deal. We, we don't just have little closets. We now have walk-in closets. And then we spill over filling up garages. And that's not enough. So we fill up our attics. And then when we run out of that space, there are 14,000 different storage rental spaces out here. And so we go rent that. For what? For the rest of our junk that doesn't matter. Let me tell you, if that's your life, you need to get busy this week and give a bunch of stuff away. In fact, I just want to give you an exercise to go home and do and, and see how serious you are about it. Have a throw-out weekend. I had one this weekend. I just I had a good time. This I had a throw-out weekend. Here's the challenge. Go home, make next weekend your weekend, and every person in your house has to throw away 100 items of theirs. Every single person does. Now, if, if that's freaking you out, you can be a sissy and you can pick your own number and make it 50. But you're a wimp if you do. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Pick your number. I don't care what your number is. But I will tell you this. I had one of these days yesterday. I quit counting at 200. I was going to do 100 yesterday. I'm counting as I'm going through. And I was at 100 within a matter of minutes. And if you've been to my house, I'm not just like a pack rat or anything. 
It's just amazing when you start looking around your house how much stuff you've accumulated that you don't use. And if you just use that simple policy, if I hadn't used it in the last year, I don't need it. And so here's the deal. For, for me yesterday in my throwout day, I'm going through and I'm counting stuff as I'm, you know, pulling out clothes and books and just all kinds of things, just counting as a guy. I mean, minutes, and I'm at 100. I quit counting at 200, and I carried out bags of additional stuff in the past 200 range. And when I'm saying 200, I'm not talking about letters and envelopes. I'm talking about items leaving the house, and I never went beyond my bedroom, closet, and bathroom. I have yet to get to the den, the guest bedrooms, the kitchen, or the garage in that I'm just saying that to say, for most of us, you start really looking and saying, have I used this in the last year? Have I used this? Is there somebody I could give this to? You'd be amazed at how much we can get rid of. It's time to get rid of the clutter. The less that stuff sticks to us, the better. The guy who actually gave me this idea has a wife and six kids, and they do this multiple times a year, and every time they do it, their number per person is 200. He said, we get rid of 1,600 items every time we have a throwout weekend. How amazing is that? That's, that's living pretty, pretty lean and clean, isn't it? I want to tell you, there is such freedom in that. I got up this morning and just looked around my room and just smiled. I'm like, oh, man, this feels so much better. Just the order and all the junk that's, that's gone. And, and now I, my car looks like a homeless person lives in it because I've got all this, these bags of stuff to give away. But I'm like, I know who I'm going to give this stuff to, so... Giving away is a good thing. And then the last piece, turn off. Just stop wasting your life on reruns and YouTube videos and video games and getting to the next level of Candy Crush or Words with Friends or whatever it is. doesn't mean that there's no room for those things. Just don't invest a lot of your time and energy in those things. We're, we're not going to change the world watching YouTube, watching reruns. And just one other word that I'll say about the, the turning off. The thing we probably need to turn off as much as anything in our lives are our cell phones for windows of time. We need to create some no cell phone zones because these things are so taking over our lives. I, I truly believe that in our generation, it is far and away the number one idol that we have is cell phones. And if you don't think so, Try and have some blocks of time this week that you go completely without yours. It drives people crazy. They think that their family is going to fall apart, that the world is just going to explode if they don't. I mean, I need my cell phone. We just, President Obama may need to call me today or say, I don't know. We, we, just, we, we can't live with that. You figure out the boundaries on that sucker and turn it off during the no cell phone zones. Can I suggest a couple of times to you? Mealtime with family, with loved ones. Those things need to be off or in another room. And if somebody pulls it out to talk on it or we're still to do this on it, shut that down. We've got to have some space where we're investing in what does matter, where we invest more in what does matter and less of what doesn't. Mealtime. When you go out on dates, and by the way, grown-ups, dates are a good thing. Married people, dates are a great thing. A date is a rotten place for a cell phone. And I know everybody's, oh, but I've got kids. I know. You know what? 20 years ago, none of us owned a cell phone. Or if you did, it was this big. You know, you had to carry around a suitcase with it. You know, we didn't have cell phones 20 and 30 years ago. And guess what? Most of us survived. When you were growing up, did your mom and dad have a cell phone so that you could call them 17 times when they went out on a date? And did you still survive? Did you burn the house down? I mean... Believe it or not, the world will make it when you turn off your cell phone and you focus on a living human being who is in your presence. It's time we start getting offended by some of this stuff because it's sucking the life out of our relationships. I want to tell you, some of the stuff we can pull off, oh, I mean, that's not really that important. This isn't spiritual stuff. This is spiritual stuff. Married people, your bedroom, your bed at night needs to be a no-cell-phone zone. The bed is good for sleeping and a couple of other things, and cell phone is not on the list. Agreed? And it, it just gets in the way of, of you know, the other good things. So 
create some, some safe zones. Why are we doing this? Why are we getting rid of, of these things? Why are we spending less? Why, why would we get rid of all this stuff that's in our hands and, and carve out our schedule and carve out time without cell phones and without TV? Why would we do that? Because less of what doesn't matter allows what? It allows for more of what does matter. So let's take just a moment and consider that. The more of what does matter. It's time to fight for what does matter. Nehemiah, when he was running the course that God had laid out for him to create a, a place for God's people and to rebuild the wall, there's all this opposition. He looks around and he's dealing with that. He looks things over and he says, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. I want you to say that last line that's underlined there with me. Fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. It's time to fight. It's time to fight for what matters. It's time we quit sitting back and living like the world. You need to live better than the world. You need a better life. You ought to model for the world what really matters. Your life is too valuable. Your calling is too great. Your God is too good for you to waste your life on what doesn't matter. Fight for what matters. The people in your life are what matters. You were made for God, for an intimate relationship with Him, for serving and knowing and enjoying Him. You were made for people. You were made for close, personal relationships with your family, with friends. You were made for relationships. You were made to enjoy the world that God created. And while technology is a great gift, technology is sucking us in so that we're missing out on the best Settling for what's good to so-so. You're going to have to watch out, though. You're going to have to be on your guard. Because there's a culture that's telling you, if this is good, this would be so much better. Are you willing to change, or are you going to brush this aside? Are you content to pursue the American dream of more? Or are you ready to make some adjustments? Because this stuff really matters. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I beg you to do a work in our lives that we would be willing to make changes. We get so wrapped up in busyness, and spending and, and all of these things. And our hearts are never content with that. By the power of your spirit. Touch us at the deepest parts of who we are. At our hearts. And, and help us. To reorient our lives around the things that really do matter. I want to ask you by a show of hands right now. How many of you would say. I know that in many ways I have been living a two-handful life. And I am ready. I am ready to make some changes. I am ready to do what it takes to stop chasing two handfuls to live with one handful. Father, I pray right now for everyone who just raised their hand. I ask you to give us discernment, to give us insight, to recognize where we need to make changes. Show us where we can cut back. Show us what we need to turn off. Show us what we need to let go of. Lord, please, I'm asking you, let your spirit move deeply in our lives that we would not just walk away and set this aside. Help us today to change by your power so that we wind up more connected to you and the people around us and the call that you have on our lives. And we trust you with that. We commit ourselves to that in Jesus' name. Amen.